ocean We settled in agreement with glee Our dangerous liaisons and clandestine creation myths were fine with me was Kishibashi with Lover. Also, you heard Bambino at Karzaman on the Azul album. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Stay tuned. We have Living Writers. Right down, right off of your feet. Take you home with me. Put you in my house. Boom, 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 boom. How, 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 how. Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio here, Laura Hultine Thomas. Laura, welcome. Thank you, T, for having me. I've just been longing to be on your show for the longest time. So thank you oh for inviting God. me. Ah, I'm well, pleased. Well, you'll just, well, we'll have to do this again <laughs> sooner than it took for us to do it the first time here. Right, Laura? Um, well, thanks for coming down on this beautiful spring day. Um, we've got your book just out with Wayne State University Press. That's right. This month. Yes. Um, the month of May, States of Motion Stories by Laura Hultine Thomas. Um, and I love that it's stories, not short stories, stories. Um, is that because these are quite long stories? I don't I don't know who came up with the, uh, with the uh, stories uh, mm. part. I did not come up with that myself. But if I had to guess, it would be because none of the stories are very short. They are longer stories. Uh, so I imagine that's uh, that's what Wayne State is getting at there. Yeah, pretty meaty. <laughs> and th yes. Thanks also for um, choosing the music for today's program. 
Oh, thank you for uh, starting off, uh, us off with uh, John Lee Hooker's Boom Boom. That's a great song, fantastic, and it seems to just capture the heart of a lot of my characters who, you know, want to put someone in their house and take care of them, and, you know, things just kind of go their own direction from there. <laughs> yes, unexpected turns, as, Absolutely. as Keith Taylor said in The, uh, in the Observer, right. I believe, right? right? Yes. Oh. Well, before we go any further, I'll read your short bio All on right. the back of the book, and thank we'll you. go from there. Laura Haltine Thomas's short fiction and essays have appeared in a number of journals and anthologies, including the Tsmarin Review, Nimrod International Journal, Epiphany, and Witness. She received her MFA in fiction writing from Warren Wilson College. She currently heads the undergraduate creative writing program at the University of Michigan's Residential College, where she teaches fiction and creative nonfiction. And then we could also say... Laura Thomas lives in Ann Arbor. Yes, she does. <laughs> and and did you grow up in Saline? I did, although I'm a transplant from the East Coast. I was actually born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and both of my parents are um, Yankee East Coasters. Uh, my mother's from Massachusetts. My father is from. Uh, uh, he actually has two birth certificates. That's the family lore. He <laughs> was born in. He's from Portsmouth, but was born across the. The water in Kittery, Maine, is where he was actually born. And when my grandmother brought him back home, they issued him two, you know, a second uh, birth so certificate could... <laughs> so he could be a resident of Portsmouth as opposed to Kittery, Maine. So, so we moved here when I was very young. Um, so uh, there's still a lot of Yankee in my family and in me that kind of intersects with the Midwestern personality as well. So, yeah, Ooh. it's an interesting mix. And my, and my husband is Southern. So we are we have great regional representation in our family within the household. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> yes. And and also and your family are they're Ford people. They were both uh uh my my dad originally moved our family out uh from the East Coast to take a job with Ford Motor. Um my parents uh, got divorced somewhere along the way and so uh my father uh married a woman who works for Ford and my stepfather works for Ford. And so we are a Ford family, absolutely. And that seems to also these these um, what we're talking about here, like this resonates within states of motion as well. Mm -hmm. The the cars, uh, the car companies, and uh, uh, a lot of action takes place in cars. Uh, takes place in while people are in transit, and uh, I think the. Uh, especially in adult crowding, uh, that uh, and the and sole suspect, both of those uh, those happen to be two uh, male characters. You know, the car is both a, a freedom and a and a and a cage for the for both these men. I, I think they feel that they can be very honest in ways they can't be on the uh, on the outside on the outside of their car. And yet they can't really seem to get free of their cars. You know, they spend a long, a lot of time, you know, in these cars. Um, in the case of adult crowding, uh, uh, the main character, Gerald, has to take a job teaching uh, teenagers how to drive because he's been laid off from his other job. And uh, I think that he comes to a very honest place within the car and becomes comfortable in that environment. And yet, you know, this is a job that he would rather not have to do. Right. Right. So, yeah. It's funny in the Midwest, how cars are, are a thing, you know, that we are, we spend a lot of time in our cars. Yeah. yeah. And, and perhaps our proximity, of course, to Detroit of course. and, and, that, and, and economics figure greatly into your book as well, mm -hmm. yes. Laura. And so the, the auto industry and, the, the resonances of the recession, um, 
that, I don't know, Michigan seems to have been in longer than most. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, since the late, late 90s. Um, But I think what I was trying to get at with the collection as well is a lot has been written about hard times in Michigan. And a lot's been written about Detroit and the Motor City. And I really wanted, you know, to the extent that these stories take place in cars and, and talk about Detroit, that's almost an adjunct in a way. I wanted cars and states of motion and, and modes of transit to be more um, the way we actually live our day-to-day lives, you know, sort of psychological resting places, getting us to where we need to go, and yet not ever quite getting us where we really want to go. Uh, so I wanted, you know, cars to be and, and modes of transit to be more metaphorical and more capturing of a psychological attitude rather than um, write yet another story about a recession drama or, you know, or something about the Motor City. So, When were you aware that this was something at work within the stories themselves, like across stories? Or was it something that you felt at the beginning was some like an observation you understood from walking around in your day to day? Many of the stories were written at different times. So I didn't write them all, you know, some date from many years ago. As a matter of fact, the Lavinia Nude uh, won a Hopwood Award many years ago when I was an undergraduate, if you can believe that. So that's the earliest, um, the, the earliest story included in the collection. And others were written in the late 90s, early 2000s, and others were written more recently. So I wouldn't say that that, um, you know, that the themes were that obvious to me as I was writing them. But as I was putting together the collection several years back, and it was at the height of the recession, and just thinking about, you know, that the themes just seemed to, uh, you know, to be there. I realized I was writing, you know, similar things over and over again from, I hope, different vantage points or, you know, different characters' attitudes towards them so that I hope they're, they don't seem... Um, repetitive. I hope they seem like they, you know, are bringing a different lens and perspective on the way we live our lives here in Southeast Michigan. But also not shying away from it as well, like staying with it. Some Mm -hmm. some things are hard and difficult, um, very difficult moments and emotional Mm -hmm. in the book Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. throughout the stories. (laughs) Um, And you're not shying away from them. Yes. And and neither are my characters. uh, They're creating their own trouble in many, many cases. And I think that you know, what I was trying to get at with the characters, and I realized this in retrospect um, more than at the time I was actually writing them. I'm not sure that I really realize a whole lot when I'm actually writing a lot of that is reading them over and, and thinking about what my intent was in retrospect. Um, but I'm interested when uh, in that space where characters' um, external problems and their internal problems blur. And so you might actually be facing, you know, in... in you know, uh, job loss, or you might actually be facing, you know, your marriage being on the rocks. But that doesn't necessarily, so that's an external stressor. But, you know, we also create a lot of our own problems in life. And I think a lot of these characters can't separate the two. You know, the job loss is leading a character like Gina in an uneven recovery to act out in ways that she can easily blame on the economic stress that the family is having. And yet she's really 
also acting out in ways that it was probably time for her to act out regardless of the job stresses because her son was coming, you know, into an age where he was going to be asking questions and her father is going to age. And these issues, you know, on these unresolved things between she and her husband and her father and her son were going to come about whether or not the family hit the skids. Maybe right. it hastened it along a bit. So I'm interested in how characters, you know, Gina being a good example, can blame external reasons on their own misbehavior that hopefully is leading them eventually to a place of revelation, maybe despite their their best intentions. <laughs> right. And but you're willing so to, you're willing to take your time in the story. Yes. And and when you're and so when you're drafting a story, Laura, are you um is it like it is it usually going long? Do you write what is sort of the process as these um complications or these layers that are connecting back to more of the interior of the character or perhaps even to their childhood in many cases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so you're, you're willing to be patient. Is that the right way to say it as you're, um, uh, you know, uh, unrolling the story or how is it working for you in the drafting process? Uh, well, I'd say it's the opposite. I'm, I'm pretty impatient as a writer. <laughs> I get pretty, pretty, uh, uh, restive and, and want to get to the Hard of why people are acting the way they are. Like, I really want to get there. So I'd, I'd say that it's my impatience with the way characters are acting or behaving or responding to, um, you know, as soon as I think to myself, you know, a character really ought to know better than to be behaving this way. That's where I want to really jump in and, and figure it out. You know, why like don't they know better? This? Yeah. yeah. What's causing this? Do they know what's causing it? If they do know what's causing it, does that matter? Does that really change anything for this character? I don't mean to write long. I guess I just do. And uh, that's, uh, I hope the reader is more patient than I am <laughs> with, with, you know, reading these stories and getting to the heart of the matter. And so, and do you find that um, in the revision process, do you go back then and are you deepening different elements or is the deepening as you're moving forward generally? I guess it doesn't obviously have to be the same every time. Well, that's exactly it. It's different for every story. Some stories are just naturally tougher to uh, get to the meat of. Um, sometimes the uh, bringing psychology into action takes a little bit longer with a story and then you have to figure out uh, where to cut down on the psychological drama and let and let you know your characters just act for a while and not not overanalyze every single thing that they're doing right because I just I like to do that I like to know why something's happening every moment and sometimes you really have to you know lay off and just let them be like trust what the next element exactly. of the plot is going to be or so yeah, exactly or what was your undergrad major if you don't mind me asking oh so I am a U of M grad um, a residential college graduate and wow yeah so my majors were uh, creative writing and uh, Russian language and, and literature so not psychology. No, not okay. psychology, although studying Russian language and lit was like studying psychology. Well, and so, well, let's talk about that in, later in the show. Absolutely. Laura, so stay tuned, everyone. Right now, we're going to take a short break. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Laura Hultine Thomas is here. Her collected stories, States of Motion, out with Wayne State University Press. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. 
Welcome back. You've got living writers. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Laura Hultine Thomas is here. We've got Laura's collected stories here and, well, her stories, her debut collection. Yes. Right? It is my debut. Which is, congratulations. Yes, and I will say that uh, you could not have a better debut than with Wayne State University Press, uh, with Annie Martin, Christina Stonehill, um, Rachel Ross designed this beautiful cover. Uh, It just, you know, it is a dream debut, and I'm just very grateful. Yeah, the cover, it seems to be so wonderful because it's kind of, do you want to talk about, let's talk, States of Motion. That's the title of the story collection. Yes, can tell us a little bit about that. So I the was, layers, maybe. <laughs> so we were talking before the break about uh, the process of going back and seeing what themes sort of arise from you know from this work. And I am not. I mean, my lowest grade ever in school was chemistry. I'm not a science major at all. But I realized that uh, what the the title story, State of Motion, um, takes place in a science Olympiad, and the main characters intersecting a lot um, with with Newton's law and, and um, you know, different physical laws and laws of flight. And I realized that that was a running three theme through many of the stories. Just these And these characters are Russian, actually. Actually, con- those, yes, connecting getting back to the to Russian your, major. That's right. Yes. Minor yes, they were uh, Russian um, emigres, and they're struggling with um, the new laws of competition in America versus what, um, you know, what, what they experienced in, in Russia and, and navigating that transition. Uh, but so the, the cover is a Newton's cradle, and I did not suggest that cover. Rachel Ross, the designer, designer um, suggested it. And I just think it is is fabulous that, you know, that, I mean, all of these characters are in states of perpetual motion. And yet, you know, they're also sort of tethered in the way the Newton's cradle is tethered. You know, um, every reaction causes an opposite and equal reaction. And then the reaction swings the other way. And so I just, as soon as this cover um, came to me, I thought, well, you know, these characters really are just these balls on a string. And every time one is put in motion, yes, the reaction that's set off is very consistent. And somewhere along the way, our characters, you know, uh, just forget that um, the laws of love and the heart really are kind of the same way. I mean, if you're going to act a certain way, you're likely going to get a certain reaction from that. And yet we still want to always test those laws, don't we? Yes. I'm kind of, it's reminding me of, I think, the second story um, with the bats. Yes. Um, reasonable we, fear. Yes. Reasonable fear, where yes. we hear the the interior monologue of um, the policeman character. Yes, Dan Rilke. Dan yes. Rilke. Yes. yes. <laughs> not Rilke. It's not. And actually, this is not in the story, but um, he is a uh, rural township um, sheriff's deputy. And um, in uh, another story that hasn't been published yet, he will um, ticket anyone who calls him Rilke because he knows that they're from the university. because And they don't know that Rilke is an old township name and it's pronounced Rilke, not Rilke. It's so. amazing how language ever Everything that we say can um, uh, reveal us. Exactly. Um, And in that case, what it reveals to him is uh, something about town and gown that he kind of wants to um, honor with a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Right. Fair enough. Um, Well, Laura, would you mind reading reading for us? Um, Sure. Well, I have read Reasonable Fear several times at at readings. And so I thought that I would read um, something a little different today, uh, especially since... 
um, were on a U of M station. I'm going to read the first two or three pages of the final story in the collection. It's called Lab Will Care, and it does take place, uh, it's completely um, uh, fictionalized, but it does take place in a university laboratory. Neither scientist nor trainee, Emily managed others' inspiration. She oversaw the care of the lab equipment and animal husbandry. She conditioned mice and recorded results. During the boom in Alzheimer's research funding, she sorted out the need for space, and she just as efficiently managed the lab's recent sharp downturn. For a decade, the ABLE lab's steady gains in the understanding of the hippocampus, the ruler of memory, had nurtured new Alzheimer's therapies. The same decade of the War on Terror had steadily siphoned Abel's funding. Now Emily fits scarcity to discovery, square peg, round hole. The lab's survival now depended upon the conquest of fear. Abel's latest grant supported post-traumatic stress research. Emily instilled, and then extinguished, fear in mice. In the lab, such feats were systematic products of biological prompts. The why of the fear response was the concern of the neuroscientist, Abel, and the postdoc studying under him. Although fear had chiseled the rules of her life, Emily would only be an adjunct to its cure. In a Spartan room adjacent to the conditioning lab, she used a computer monitor to observe the freeze response. Her presence in the lab, even out of sight, would disrupt the mouse's instinct so Emily positioned a camera above the test cage and watched the isolated mouse scamper in a black-and-white video frame. She programmed a tone to coincide with a wave of electrical shocks conducted through the cage floor's metal grid. One or two rounds of shock were all it took to imprint fear. When she played the tone without the shock, the freeze response ossified the body in its last pose. A tail curled in curiosity, and a neck craned in casual investigation were captive to an exquisite stillness until the tone ceased, the threat passed. After the fear response was ingrained, it was time to, to decondition. For two days, she would chime the single note without the shock and record how long it took for the mouse to become unafraid. With time, learned fear could be unlearned, but the mouse retained a shadow terror that could be measured neurologically. Original fear never leaves the subconscious. If fear of a musical note couldn't be erased, Emily didn't hold Abel's hope for erasing the psychological pain of war or trauma. Anyway, she didn't want to think about what might be left exposed in the memory if Tara's linchpin were removed. The animal husbandry staff was in charge of feeding the mice, filling water dispensers, cleaning cages, but the cage room across from the conditioning lab was reserved for labble care. Only the researcher cared for these mice, who matured without ever being touched. Successful conditioning required them to be handled for the first time as adults. Once acclimated, mice behave like cats. They rub their bodies to her skin, eyes glittery, drunk on her touch. Ten days was enough to train the mice to come to her open palm, rely on her by sight by smell, and by sensation. Today, Emily was halfway to acclimation with her current subject. After five days, the mouse still skittered restlessly under her methodical stroking of his back and belly. Like the observation room, the acclimation lab was designed to be neutral. 
White walls, white tile, white plastic shelves overflowing with equipment. From the far wall, a clock's second hand slid quietly from moment to moment, the hushed tick the only sound besides Emily's breathing and the click of the mouse's claws on the steel tabletop when she set him down. Emily scooped him up again, a soft bundle of brown with a white belly. She was practicing the motion of delivering him to the conditioning cage and removing him again, training him to accept without fear the sweeps of changing altitude. In a few more days, the mouse would trust her hand as he would trust a flying carpet spell. She carried the mouse back to lab will care, set him gently in his cage. Soon her essence would bedrock his sense of security, and then the fear conditioning could begin. Emily crossed the hall to another cage room that housed the mice who had completed their conditioning. Imprinting fear had altered their neurological patterns. These patterns could now be recorded. Fear would have substance as waves on a monitor, the effects on the hippocampus as visible as a web of veins under the skin. Emily pulled on a pair of gloves, scooped up her subject, and carried him to the euthanizing table. She snapped his neck and from there worked quickly to preserve the animal's brain and the hope of peace it might reveal. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. It's interesting hearing you read that out loud um, versus reading it to myself off the page. It's almost more, um, slightly more menacing. Like frightening in a way, which I didn't quite get when I was reading when it. When you were um, reading it, how did it the, how did it come across? Not not as um, not as much so mm-hmm. somehow. I'm mm-hmm. not sure though, because that was just there were moments maybe being in the language in a different way, hearing it mm-hmm. um, that was quite wonderful. I wrote down the 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 fear had chiseled the rules of her life, like mm-hmm. moments like that. The yes, this the. the veins of the uh, yeah it's just really um, and if you this is a companion story to the very first story so if you have read the first story um uh, so if you read the collection in order and, and hit that first story first you'll understand what that line means and what um how the rules of fear have chiseled her life and that felt like to me the first indicator of the connection between the two stories mm-hmm. because it's not it's not necessarily evident that they're going to be connected mm-hmm. except that the, the the character's name is Emily that we meet in both stories, but it could have been a different Emily. Right, um, exactly. I love that effect. Um, Alice Monroe will do that, um, and uh, Andrea Barrett will do that, where in their collections you'll come across, um, you know, a character several stories in, and, and you think for a page or two, oh, is this that woman from that story? Oh, yes, it is. And <laughs> I just love that surprise as a reader. Even so across- I was books, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Well. I just love and Grace that. Grace Paley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I like that surprise of not knowing quite and then, you know, where the the puzzle piece falls into place where you realize, oh, and now she's in medical research and now her job is to um, instill fear. How interesting. I wonder how she got there. <laughs> when So when you were making this story, um, when it started, like, uh, I don't know if you remember the origin moments of it, but was it clear to you that this was connected? This was going to be Emily from the, from the, the warding, warding charm? charm? Yes, absolutely. The warding charm I wrote, um, I wrote first. 
And I could not let Emily go without knowing where she ended up. And even at the time I was reading The Warding Charm, um, I knew that she would be a scientist. You know, I knew that that environment was going to be an environment that felt safe to her. You know, she was drawn to science as a child, um, really felt safe with her biology teacher, you find out in the first story. And I just thought, you know, this, that was, that's... There's safety in facts, and there's safety in in observation, and that I I just knew that that is what she would be, and so I wanted to write that. An observation, and that's a quality of the writer mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. cultivating. Absolutely, and Emily is one of the characters who does not emote. You know, she's she's a pretty distanced um, person, a pretty distanced narrator, and that seemed to fit. You know, her comfort zone with. Let's look at this. Let's study this. Let's figure out, you know, fear is an emotion that now we can see on this, you know, on this uh, computer screen and we can quantify it, you know, and quantifying what happened to her is how she seeks comfort. And I think a measure of, you know, um, understanding, if not some kind of redemption. And a way of being in the world. And a way, absolutely. I mean, this is the way she can be in the world. Let's Mm -hmm. take a short break and then we'll come back and talk more today on the program. Laura Hultine Thomas is here. States of Motion, the book on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Laura Hultine Thomas is here. States of Motion, Laura's Stories, out with Wayne State University Press. I'd like to also mention our studio audience today. Um, we've got Amanda and Frank Uli here in the studio and um, the Liz, of course, behind the glass. Um, okay, so, um, Laura, thanks again for picking the song. That was called, kind of a haunting Springsteen song. We it's just one of my were, favorites. Um, 
is it? It is. Since, since when? How did that one come into your, like you said you drive a lot. Is okay. this an album you would listen to in your car? It, it was, and it, it's, you know, that album, of course, it, Born in the USA, right? Isn't that from Born in the USA? You know, all his albums, and especially uh, after 9-11, you know, just capture a certain place in time in the same way that, you know, our, our small towns do. And, uh, you know, all the um, songs and all the singers that I pick for today really have their souls in their voice. You know, I just, I love the way they sing and I love the way they bring emotion right to the fore. Um, and I, I just think that this elegy to to our hometowns is just, it's, it's beautiful. It's haunting to me. I love it. Um, Laura, how did you choose the stories to put in states of motion? Because you mentioned there's another story with Dan Rilke that we can look for later on. Hopefully so, yes, um, yes. And a, a couple other stories with, with Emily. Um, you know, it was not uh, the most um, straightforward process. It just some of that, like writing itself, is intuitive. I would put stories together and think, you know, this one just doesn't fit. Or maybe um, in a couple of cases of stories that I left out, uh, we're saying... The characters were similar or saying similar things in, in ways that maybe weren't as um, compelling to me or seem dated. You know, a story can seem dated if you're trying to capture, um, you know, something to, you know, there's a, there's a fine line between, you know, sort of a historical resonance and feeling like, okay, this is like out of date, you know. And so a couple of stories felt that way to me. Mm-hmm. And so, and these stories seem to have this... Um, this feeling, not hitting the same note, but having this this sense about them that linked them, mm-hmm. that you felt they were within this time frame or exploring these, yes, these and, emotions. Yes, and, and place, too. I do set some stories in Russia, and, of course, none of those were going to be in a collection. Um, I, you know, Southeast Michigan, um, there were a couple of stories that I've set in different places, and those would not be a great fit. A couple of stories um, that didn't make the the cutter that I didn't include take place up north, and I didn't want. I, I wanted this collection to be really southeast Michigan, southeast Michigan, and and um, mm-hmm. a couple of stories are set in Ann Arbor, but I also didn't want, and I have not written about Detroit. I I didn't grow up there. I didn't. I don't feel like I'm the best writer to capture Detroit. So so I wanted the collection to be about this region that. Um, has not been written about a lot. You know, we have a lot of Detroit work, and we have a lot of up north, beautiful literature about up north. Um, and Bonnie Jo Campbell has written quite a bit about the west side of the state. Southeast Michigan is just, um, you know, it's it's just an odd sort of uh, collection of, of places um, and I think the other challenge about uh, thinking about the region and writing about the region is that there are a lot of um, folks of different classes and different outlooks living sort of side by side. And, you know, you can kind of only intersect with people of a different, you know, uh, value system or mindset, maybe at Walmart or Myers every once in a while, but you don't necessarily come into contact. You know, we've got many bubbles in Southeast Michigan. 
Oh, and so Ann Arbor isn't the only bubble because you often, right, often hear exactly. Ann Arbor bubble. Well, we and we all and we, and we have assumptions about what the Ann Arbor bubble is that I wanted to play with too, and that's why um, I name Ann Arbor in a couple of of stories so that people can bring those assumptions to what they assume about the university, what the assumption is about the work of of research and what a university lab does. Um, you know the types of people who pursue that work or the types of people who, you know, had pretty good lives before the recession and lost it all, you know, how does that feel for a middle class person, you know, and then how does it feel for a, maybe a lower middle class person? And, you know, I don't know that uh, Gerald from Adult Crowding and Gina from An Uneven Recovery are going to cross paths, even though they might very well be neighbors. And And so... I'm thinking about, so this wanting to represent mm -hmm. this place mm -hmm. and sort mm -hmm. of place's character mm -hmm. as well. Um, and how, when you said there's lots of, there's lots of differences that are just abutting, like, like we have a, a small city, we have towns, mm -hmm. we have farms, maybe some small like villages still. And within 10 minutes drive. I mean, it's the most amazing place to, to live. And then know? also yeah. these, like the farmland then being taken over maybe mm -hmm. by bigger developments. Absolutely. Where then there's these pockets mm -hmm. or bubbles, <laughs> newly made bubbles on the landscape exactly. of this own commute, their own communities. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, bubbles are popping up, you know, everywhere. And yet it's, it's also interesting to me that longtime residents, I think, are still, you know, even if they move into these subdivisions, there's still a connection with, you know, rural values that is really, um, you know, um, you know, there's a legacy of the farm, I think, that carries um, over into, um, you know, these modern developments. And I can't speak for people who have moved in from other places um, that maybe were not coming from rural places. But growing up, Celine was still a pretty rural place. We used to play capture the flag in cornfields behind our house before Travis Point was built. Um, and so I Ooh, think the golf club and the golf club, right. You know, and so then we couldn't play capture the flag anymore no. because we had the, <laughs> the country club that none of us could afford to belong to. Um, but, uh, you know, for all that things change, there are still so many values that don't change or evolve very slowly i guess is is what you can say in southeast right. michigan some good I values and some that. some some not so well, well troublesome values yeah or, well did, uh yeah <laughs> right yeah. i yeah. think like uh one of There's the a spectrum of values how about we say it that way <laughs> well and i think in one of your stories that is especially um soul suspect yes i was um I wasn't expecting that. I don't know why. So I was. It was unexpected for me when, like the the clan as as has um, a yes, cameo. Yes. Definitely isn't. Sounds like too lighthearted of a word here. These, um, these outsiders. Yes. 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 These uh, these these folks who are living in the compounds, and I'm not sure that Gerald or anyone else knows who these folks are, and they're. You know, maybe going to encroach and maybe not. That's a very shady sort of um, situation that he doesn't care to, you know, to go into. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so so, Laura, let's talk about because you mentioned earlier in the program that you were here as an undergrad at I the was. residential college, yes. RC, yes. Um, and you were a creative writing 
major. Yes, that I was. was. That was your your major. A um, very happy time. Is, is, yes. So what? when did you start writing? Like, what was, did you write always as a kid? Or was it something that you did find when you came to the university? What was, what was that like for you? You know, I was one of those little kids who just loved to read and loved the comfort of books. I started writing when I was very, very young. I started telling stories when I was very young. I was just remembering the other day for uh, another um, chat I was having with a fellow writer how I used to just spin stories just forever. And this is when I was too young to know how rude I was being and just, you know, monopolizing, you know, everybody else's airspace. Um, and I would just get to the juicy bit of a plot and I'd take a deep breath and say, and, and go on to the next thing. And, you know, so I think this writing long and speaking long got, you know, uh, got started pretty early on. I don't know that I always uh, wanted to be a writer um, exactly. Yeah, because it sounds like you were doing it out loud. You were able to do it. Well, just I'm off writing the cuff. them down too. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I was writing, writing them down. Okay. Yeah, I was doing it all. But I don't think I ever really, you know, I, I majored in creative writing and, like I said, Russian. And I honestly expected that I would go on with with Russian studies um, rather than and continue to write. I guess I had been told enough times that. Um, being a literary writer was not going to be something one did without doing, you know, something else to help that along and, you know, and earn a living. So, And who yeah. were the voices that told you that? Like, sounds like get, get, it's a given. It sounds like the voice of practicality. But <laughs> I, Well, I think, you know, literary fiction and poetry, it's just sort of almost a badge of honor, I guess, at this point that, you know, we're, it's not going to be something that is self-supporting, except for the very few, um, very successful, you know, very talented and, and lucky individuals. Um, so I never, I was not out to be a commercial writer ever, to be honest. So I, you know, I just, I just have always written and sometimes I've done it better than at other times. And I just When you say it. that, do you mean actually the the process of it, the writing, like either the day to day when you say sometimes I've done it better than others? Is that what you mean, Laura? The writing like the, itself the and habit yeah, of and it. Actually or the... that's a really cool thing that you just said because um this week I have not had a great writing week, you know, in terms of the process. Sometimes the process is kind of like why I'm not very good at this process. I wonder if other people are better at this process than I am. I mean, it just feels like, ah, oh, you know, um, and that's apart from whether, you know, the work seems to be going well or seems to be flowing. So I like that you said that, you know, do you feel successful at the process? Because I think that that is something I teach and think about a lot is what does it mean to be successful in the process uh, and take a little bit of pressure to the extent that one can off the, the the product or the final writing. You know, I just, I just, I really like that you said it that way. That's great. Yeah. And so, what, and so what do you think about your process? Like, I know you said this week hasn't been going well. Well, the sun's been shining <laughs> it's like, and it's you, just, you know, why am I sitting but, here? But maybe that, but oh, so, okay. So part of your practice is that you do write every day. Because that's what it sounds like when you say, why am I sitting here? I, I try during the summer when I'm not, yeah. When I'm not <laughs> teaching, I am definitely trying to write more because when I'm teaching, um, and, and particularly with juggling my kids' school schedule, um, it's impossible to to write every day. And yeah. and also and also it seems like the headspace too in some ways. 
Indeed, is, yes. Is I would say the energy yeah, of it. Right, and I would say um, that that's another good way to phrase it. Sometimes the headspace just isn't there, and this week was just one of those weeks. A lot of distractions and fussiness. Although what I what I tell my students and what I need to tell myself is I'm also at um, in the work that I'm working on now. I'm at a particularly difficult place. I don't not quite know what to what to do with this with this scene and this character and what they're doing isn't making sense. And so it is very easy to say, oh, gee, I think I'll go um, plant some begonias now and <laughs> not do this. Tis the begonia season. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Today on Living Writers, Laura Haltine Thomas is here. States of Motion. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Laura Hultine Thomas is here in the studio. Um, thanks so much for coming by today, Laura. Well, thank you for having me. This is the f- a very fun conversation. Uh, well, you're welcome anytime. Just now you know where we are. <laughs> Swing on by. Thank you. <laughs> um, and st- we've been talking about States of Motion just out this month with Wayne State University Press. And um, very fittingly, it's also in the Made in Michigan writer series. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, too. And we've had um, lots of friends of the show, I feel like, have been connected to the series. It's a fantastic series. I, I think that we can talk about regional literature um, and Michigan literature in ways we couldn't 10 years ago before this series was started by Annie Martin and the great folks at Wayne State. I mean, we should all be, as readers, enormously grateful to the fantastic work that's being published. Yeah, and it's it, great because it, it really does feel like that um, more, like more is happening, or more. I don't uh, that there's lots happening with Michigan writing right yes. now, and, and like you mentioned before, of course we've got Hemingway and Jim Harris. Like there's these UP stories and these, you know, um, 
but this feels different now. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that what Wayne State is doing with Made in Michigan um, is bringing writers that wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, come to the attention of a lot of readers uh, because they they do such a tremendous job of getting books into bookstores and making readers aware of, you know, the great variety of writers we have in this state. And, and thank goodness for the bookstores. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're so blessed to have Nicholas, um, you know, in town for so many years. And now Literati has just taken off. After Shaman Drum closed, I was afraid the business model just wasn't going to be there. And thank heavens for Literati coming in and Yes. And making us an independent bookstore downtown again. You know, it's just amazing. And you had you were you were one of the last people to read at Shaman Drum. I was, yeah, and, I was. And now I, you've also read at Literati with with States of Motion yes, for your launch. Yes, uh, my book launch was uh, on May seventeenth at Literati. It was just a uh, you know, it's beautiful reading space. Such support from the bookstore um, for our regional lit as well as the major writers they bring in. I mean, that is what. Um, this series does so well and what um, the bookstores that support writers, you know, I can, writer like myself with a debut collection can read and, you know, Samantha Irby and Roxanne Gay are going to be reading at Literati later this summer. I mean, you've just got so many um, voices coming to this area. You know, we're just very lucky to have such dedicated Indeed, folks. indeed. Yes. Um, well, okay. So in the last quarter, you were talking about what you were working on right now. Um, is it so is this a, another is this a story? Do you do you tend to because I know you also write um, essays, nonfiction yes, as well. I do. Yes. Um, so is that or is, but this sounds like it's a story with a character and with a plot. Is that what you're... Actually, what I'm working on now is is a novel. A novel, uh, yes. okay. Yes, and so uh, Dan Rilke will be one of the main characters in the novel. So, so yes, so how I'm did expanding that... him into a, into a novel. How did that happen, Laura? Like, how did he emerge as someone who he's... Yeah. I, I, he's... Like inside your head, yeah. You know, he he just won't be. Um, <laughs> he just he just won't go away, and I wouldn't want him to. Um, he's a complicated he, he just, guy, at least from states of motion. He's got amazing energy, and he is a character um, that I'm interested in. Uh, like we were talking about, I think um, near the beginning of the show, where the line between you know, external pressures and his own psychological stuff, you know, I mean, he, his private life just spills out into his public um, space without him even understanding that that is that is happening. And, you know, he's a you know, he's also a cop. And I think, you know, the national spotlight right now is on the relationship of cops to their communities. And we've had a lot of stories about, um, you know, um, city cops and maybe not as many about, you know, um, cops out out in the country and what they're facing and um, uh, the types of stressors that are um, that are being put on them and, and how, you know, even if race is not necessarily in the equation, how the rumblings from, um, you know, the uh, the the big demonstrations in other cities are percolating down, you know, and and causing, you know, just causing stress. And and how are these guys dealing with that? And and uh, yeah, what's what's special about that struggle in this community? Mm-hmm. And so, do you um, do you know a lot of cops, Laura? Not that, or how are you, how would you research this? Like, if you don't like what what angle are you come because it seems like 
you're interested in also looking at something that on the surface might seem ordinary. I'm like, less like he's so not I, a New York City cop. Exactly. He's so a I, small town cop in I don't, southeast Michigan. I don't know a lot of cops and so I'm hoping that it will not be simply a story about um, a cop as much as a story about one's relationship to stressful work. Right. So, uh, you know, there are other characters in the novel who do different types of work. And, excuse me, um, that's what interests me is what are the professions where you intersect with the community in different ways and how does that start to... um, you know, uh, surface your own psychological drama that may have drawn you to this profession in the first place without you even really realizing it. You know, he's, you know, this character of Dan Rilke and other characters. Like Emily in the lab. Like Emily in the lab. They're in their 30s, you know, sort of not quite midlife crisis material yet, but sort of starting to see wow, maybe what drew me to do this life's work are reasons that maybe I need to start thinking about, or maybe they're starting to erode other relationships. And maybe the stress of, you know, issuing tickets or doing this research or, um, in the case of Gerald, teaching um, teenagers how to drive, you know, I'm, it's the work I'm interested in and the psychology around our relationship to, to work. The I think. work. Yeah, the the work itself and, and how it... And how it forms us, even if we aren't realizing how much it's forming us over the years. So in the novel, do you think there'll be a university professor? Is there a university professor? There is not a university professor. Yes. <laughs> I wonder. Yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Who knows what the next That's right. May, That's right. Maybe. Because <laughs> um, it's interesting because I was asking about the research question also because of... Um, the, the Emily story in the lab, how you did, you said, you know, I look, I'm science isn't my thing necessarily, but you did. I'm do as re- ignorant re- about science as I am about cops. So <laughs> I don't know. I think writers want to know just enough to be able to imagine the rest and then try to, you know, after the work is done and you're thinking, oh, well, maybe someone will read this and think, wow, that's not the way it is at all. And then you kind of go maybe fact check a little bit and just make sure that you're not. But um, yeah, just enough to be imaginative and maybe a little dangerous and inaccurate. <laughs> and and so how did you, like, when when did you feel like you learned to trust your imagination? Uh, so the Emily stories in the, uh, the, that take place in the lab, I had written them and then I actually went and toured one of the university labs to get some of the information accurate about, um, the fear conditioning and went and saw, uh, the different places where the mice are tended and some of the, um, you know, when, when the researchers put them through their paces and, and acclimate. And so I did go and take a tour, but... And observed and very it, closely. It and like. observed very closely. I don't know that I got all the details accurately, but that came after I had finished several drafts of the story. I mean, to some extent, I really do want to know just enough to imagine what might happen and imagine what I wish would happen and then go back and check to make sure it's plausible. I mean, the fiction writer, the the sweet spot is plausibility. It's not necessarily accuracy, but is this plausible? 
um, for uh, for realistic fiction, obviously. Um, but I think even uh, speculative fiction has that bar of plausibility to allow the reader to go on that journey with the writer and to go ahead and go with someone's imagination, to go on that, you know, to take that leap of faith. I think the work has to seem plausible and be possible. Why, and why do you think it is important that you have space for the imagination then, where you're resistant to actually trying to research too much while you're in the story formative the formative parts of the story it sounds like uh, well research can be very fun and it's amazing how much research you can do at the expense of writing and so you do have to kind of put a because it's work well exactly. another time it's work so fun to learn things and to take <laughs> notes and to follow especially in now in the internet age to follow those links and see where they go I do do a fair amount of just following the link even if it seems off base but at a certain point you got to you got to do the writing and you know and I I see this in students sometimes too you can get hung up on facts at the expense of trying to get to some truth because really I'm not writing historical fiction I think it must be different for a historical fiction writer or for a writer who's doing something else but you know my characters are really just trying to figure their stuff out and you got to just get to that work and then maybe fill in the research later on. It's so interesting, though, because as you're talking about it, it's very much about the interior of the individual mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. But in the states of motion, place is so critical. And this and this this desire of yours to also represent southeastern Michigan in stories. Yes, yes. It, it, that can be very difficult to write about a place that you grew up in and, and are familiar with. I, it's very much easier for me to write a story that's not set where I'm familiar with because I think we just internalize a lot of our um, surroundings and we don't necessarily know what is what might be special or interesting to a reader because you know we're living it every day so yeah but you took that challenge I, I hope I succeeded. I guess the readers will have to tell me whether I brought Southeast Michigan alive or whatever. Well, I certainly think you did. Um, thanks so much for talking with me today, Laura. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has just been tremendous fun. Such a pleasure. Oh, we'll come back anytime and we'll go out on the last song that you chose as well. Um, today on Living Writers, um, I've been talking with Laura Hultine thomas um, States of Motion, Laura's stories out with Wayne State University Press. Thanks to Christina Stonehill for sending me a copy of the book. Many thanks to the Liz for engineering, and thanks to you all for listening. Um, until next time.
You you are listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, and bienvenidos a la media hora norteña. 